right. Welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Jake Adamson. Jake, how are you doing today, bud? I'm doing great. How are you, Mark? Man, fantastic. We have a great guest here, uh, Kathleen Nelson-Romans. And uh, what do you do, Kathleen? Hey, guys. So what I do, uh, my title is Business Innovation Engineer, which doesn't tell you a whole lot about what my actual job is, but I work for Eaton Corporation. And for those who aren't familiar with Eaton, we are a $21 billion uh, company with 100,000 employees. We do business in over 47 countries globally. So pretty big company. We design and manufacture components that go into a lot of things, into cars, into airplanes and trains. And uh, they're pretty much all associated with power. We are a power management company. So for me, yeah, it's it's very diverse. It's pretty exciting. Uh, I work in our research division. We're called Eaton Research Labs. And I am a pretty, pretty weird position within the research labs. Did you make it up? How did you find this position? It kind of was, it was made for me. I, uh, with the... Those are the best kinds. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It was pretty weird. So I work with almost exclusively PhDs. I am not one. Um, My job is, in a nutshell, to make sure all of the time and money we're investing in researching new technologies can actually generate revenue for our company at some point. All right. Yeah. Important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) something that we we recognized uh, was a gap and we thought, hmm, probably should should make sure that... Are each of our projects actually going to make money? Yeah. 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 And of course, they can't all make money. You can't all necessarily know right at the beginning if they will or not. But my job is to kind of help with that process serve as the bridge between our research division and our business units and make sure that our partnerships between the two are really strong so we know what our customers want know what our business units are prepared to sell and what will fit in well with their product lines that's really cool yeah when i remember first reaching out to you i was all excited because i hadn't seen another engineer in the industry with uh the word innovation in their title yet so i i also got to make up my title because i was like the first or second employee at franklin mountain um so they were kind enough for uh, to let me make it up so that's right you and mark are one of a kind (laughs) but innovation in your title innovation buddies making (laughs) making waves bringing change that's right (laughs) i guess what kind of projects are you working on right now so the majority of my time is focused on the electric vehicle industry. So a bit about my background. I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Oklahoma State University, uh, graduated in 2015. And then I went on to get a master's in engineering for sustainable development at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And then I started with Eaton, and I was in Eaton's um, Engineering Technology Leadership Program, which is a two-year rotational development program. So because Eaton is such a big company with so many different divisions, they have a lot of these rotation programs that let you spend a year in different businesses and kind of get a feel for where you want to land. That's really cool. Yeah. What kind of influence do you have or did you have in deciding which businesses or groups you rotated in? So... Any any group can request uh, an ETLP, 
as as they're their <laughs> abbreviated their yeah training yeah as a development yeah. program participant and then you get to look at a list of jobs and locations you have a few weeks to reach out to managers and talk about what that position might be what their divisions do and then you list your top five awesome and hope that you uh you get one of those that is cool kind of like a residency if you were to be a doctor right, right. It is. as an engineer yeah. for a large multinational corporation that's really cool yeah yeah it was really awesome would you recommend that route for other young professionals looking to uh start off their career I definitely would, especially if, like me, you aren't exactly sure what you want to do and you're not quite ready to commit yeah. <laughs> to something. It takes some for the time rest working to career. actually realize like what different jobs do. Exactly. Exactly. You learn a tremendous amount. And I would also preface that with make sure you have the support and the stamina to move that often because it gets pretty exhausting. Uh, my husband and I have moved six times in the past oh, five wow. years. Yeah. That's busy. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive right into it. You talked about predominantly with electric vehicle space or electrical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. So what uh, I am doing with electrical vehicle infrastructure in my company right now, we are trying to determine what strategy we, we should take to approach the market. So I mentioned we are in a lot of different industries. One of our, our main industry is electrical, which means okay. big gray boxes that go into the distribution system. So transformers, circuit breakers, breaker panels, okay. all of that. Yeah. So it's a natural fit for Eaton to enter this space. But we're trying to decide, do we want to manufacture chargers? Uh, what, you know, kind of similar to oil and gas, there's the, the downstream you could think of as, you know, the, uh, the charging itself upstream might be the energy generation. We're kind of in the middle. We're kind of the midstream. We are the ones that will help the energy get from the generation point to your vehicle. And we kind of have to figure out what strategy we want to take with that. Super cool. So I guess you're checking out and looking at a bunch of different technologies and trying to figure out which ones are the most profitable, where the largest growth is in the sector. Exactly. Really looking at market segments. So okay. there's the residential segment. We're looking at the different segments of transportation. Um, it could be commercial trucking, um, the transit buses, um, that sector. So looking at how we we where we see the greatest value for our contribution that's great and maybe we'll want to work up to this question a little bit but what do you forecast needs to change for electrical infrastructure for i imagine all the commercial trucks like the semis and dump trucks and whatnot and then everyone's personal vehicles to be electrified like if we were to flip the switch tomorrow and everyone drives an electric vehicle um, I guess where are the bottlenecks going to be? Like where are the pinch points? Um, and if I'm jumping into this too fast, then we could ease into it. But I'm curious what you feel needs to happen. Hey, no, let's tackle it. So that's a that's a huge question, and I think a big challenge with the electric vehicle industry is that it's really dynamic. There's no there are no standards. standards are still being yeah. formed, actually, technical standards. The market is really fluid right now, and there's a lot of different predictions and schools of thoughts around where the major majority of charging will be done. So if we want to look at personal vehicles, at the moment, uh, I think it's 80, 85 percent of charging is done at the home. Okay. So the, Rather than at the office or place of work. Right. Yeah. Right. So most people are driving to work, driving home, and plugging in their car, and it's charging overnight. 
The problem there is once you have a lot of vehicles owned by people at their homes, each vehicle takes about six to seven kilowatt hours to charge, which is about equivalent to the load of a home. So adding a vehicle is almost doubling the amount of energy consumption at the residential level. Oh, interesting. I had no idea. So the same as running your stove, dishwasher, keeping all your lights on. It's all of it. All of it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the problem there is going to be more at the local level than at the larger, larger infrastructure level. So when you have a lot of people connecting to the same transformer, at some point that transformer is going to reach your peak point. So... A lot of the solutions that everyone is talking about, in addition to looking at the addition of infrastructure, a lot of the solution is going to have to come from things like managed charging so okay. and time-of-use tariffs. I'm not familiar with managed charging or time-of-use tariffs. So Let's chat about them. All right. So time-of-use tariffs are implemented by utilities to try and shift the peak load So let's say everyone leaves work between 5 and 7 p.m., comes home, plugs in their car. That means you're going to see a big spike in energy consumption at that time. So utilities can incentivize charging at different times by making it really expensive to charge overnight or to charge from the hours of, you know, 7 p.m. until midnight. So by implementing tariffs, you're going to be incentivized to either charge at your workplace to avoid expensive charging, and that's going to kind of smooth out the load. Right. Uh, manage charging is being able to manage your own charging. So at the residential level, you can use the term manage charging for fleets as well, and okay. we can get into that. But for a homeowner, manage charging is being able to simply set the time that you want to charge your vehicle. So you might have your vehicle plugged in from 7 p.m. until 7 a.m., but you can set your charger to only deliver power to your vehicle for half of that time. Got it. That's really interesting. So it's, it's setting a timer for when electricity is basically going into your battery, right? Yep. Part of what has to happen and part of what makes this uh, market segment so dynamic and so complex is the interdependencies between different segments that haven't had to work with each other. So now utilities are having to communicate with uh, these residential level charging devices. And Previously, it was just a dumb meter that one guy would go out and check once a month, right? Right. And it was just that one meter. But then with, I guess, additional smart meters being implemented and installed throughout the world, we have an opportunity to better price electricity. Exactly. So this is coming at a time when everyone's looking at smart home technology. So everyone's looking right. at how can I reduce my energy prices? Right. So there's a lot of there are a lot of devices that exist today that will help you manage appliance loads and it makes sense that EV will fit right along with uh, with those large loads. That's great. So kind of along those same lines, um, what do you think are the big opportunities for, I guess, us moving forward in this sector? Um, how can young professionals kind of apply their knowledge to uh, both benefit the, the energy industry, the electrical industry, and also themselves? So what I see as a really big opportunity is you have a lot of fleets that are going to be asking themselves if they should electrify. Yeah. And if so, what's needed in order to facilitate that? So 
there's going to need to be a lot of experts in this area that can come into a fleet. Just the 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 project management that comes with electrifying multiple vehicles is huge. Yeah, it's extremely time consuming, and a lot of uh, existing companies aren't going to have a person that can just naturally step into that role and learn learn as much as they can about the industry and that the amount of time that would take is is pretty extensive. So they're going to be turning to third parties to help advise them and to help them understand how expensive it will be to electrify their fleet, how the benefits will uh, will manifest themselves and how to make that transition happen. That's where I see a, a really big opportunity for young professionals that are looking to help progress this industry. I totally agree. I've long thought that with the advent of autonomous vehicles, electric fleets will become almost the obvious choice for transportation, at least in the private sector in urban areas, right? I mean, if you're taking a cab, in my mind, one of the only reasons that, or one of the biggest roadblocks for making a purchase of electric vehicle might be, could be more expensive. But I think most people agree that the prices are coming down, batteries are becoming less expensive, and there's a lot of all of the car manufacturers are trying to compete now, right? Uh, so what are the other roadblocks? Recharge time and range, right? How far can the vehicle go and how long does it take to recharge? But in my mind, those two get eliminated if you just have Uber or Lyft all the time, right? And you don't own a vehicle anymore. And instead, transportation is your only goal. Do you agree? Yeah, I would see that. I would caution against saying that Uber and Lyft are going to solve our transportation problems Fair. simply yeah. because they aren't very efficient at transporting a lot of people <laughs> to a lot of places. <laughs> They're sure. great on an individual basis. Yeah. One of the really awesome applications for electric vehicles is in transit buses because there's a defined okay. route. You know exactly how many miles you will travel every day. Yeah. You know how what the incline is. You know how exactly how much energy you will consume on your route. And there are times when the bus is not running, which gives you an opportunity to charge. And you can transport a lot of people uh, at once. So I think that, yes, there are ways in which electrification will hopefully minimize the need for individual car ownership. But my personal my personal goal is that it will manifest itself a lot in public transportation in addition okay. to the private sector. And this brings another question. Um, along those same lines, how about the consumer like Jill Smith or Joe Smith that likes taking their four by four out into the desert, crawling up rocks and skirting over canyons and strapping four or five gas cans to the back of their Jeep or truck or whatever. Do you foresee an alternative for them that is electrified? So I have seen vehicles that are coming out. Rivian is a car manufacturer that has recently come onto the scene and they have a cool commercial that you can see that's advertising their electric truck, which you can pre-order. It's not manufactured yet, but the commercial shows two women taking it out camping and they show them utilizing the power from their vehicle to charge their camp stove. And it's pretty cool. cool. So 
I would <laughs> say. Cool. Jake, Jake, when you're asking the question, I was like, Jake, that's a dumb question. There's no <laughs> 4x4 yeah. that exists yet. But that's, that's apparently there is. Really? Yeah. That's cool. I'll have yeah. to look that up. We'll include yeah. that in the show well, notes. That's always been my yeah. thought is I imagine, you know, the mobility, the ability just to, you know, go far into these remote places and to have that safety net of just bringing lots of gasoline. Yeah, you know, I guess you could Back have power. lots of batteries, solar panels, yeah, the solar arrays. All of the ones I've seen haven't looked very practical <laughs> as an engineer. But yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> so we sit talking like solar panels on top of a vehicle to charge it. That type of yeah, you can Google pictures. It's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, th- there are cars huge. that that yeah. have those. There, there's a vehicle that costs a ridiculous amount, but advertises that it charges as you drive because there are solar panels on it. But I don't personally think that's very practical <laughs> yeah yeah what are a few common misperceptions about the industry and I guess the electrical infrastructure space so that's an interesting question partly because i'm pretty immersed in this industry yeah so it's it's can be challenging to look at it from an outsider's perspective but a couple that i was thinking about were i do think that there is a conception a misconception rather that EVs are a trend. Okay. And that, yeah, they're cool. But they may fall out of favor at right. some point. Right. Um, but the, from your, from your perception, from the inside looking in, I guess, uh, they're here to stay. Yeah. From based on what we're seeing manufacturers, the decisions that manufacturers are making, the okay. amount of money that they're yeah. investing just last week, Subaru made the announcement that they plan to sell only electric vehicles by the mid 2030s. Wow. They're marketing straight to Colorado. Yeah. Everyone drives a Subaru in Colorado. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Ford said that a third of their, their vehicles offered will be electric by 2030. Uh, Volkswagen said they plan to sell 2 million electric vehicles per year by 2022. So the, the OEMs are, are putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah. So I think it would take a lot to, to reverse that at this point. But again, this is such a dynamic industry that anything can change. That's incredible. That's really cool and terrifying for someone in the upstream oil and gas space. I guess kind of, we still have to generate the electricity somehow, right? I did actually want to ask you guys what, within the oil and gas industry, how, how do you feel about electric vehicles? Uh, my personal view, and this is me. No, I'm not. I can't speak for uh, the industry as a whole, or my company, or anyone else. But it's just me. Um, I think electric vehicles are going to require a lot of energy generation, and based on how much gas I know, natural gas exists in North America, I view it uh, as tremendously positive for the natural gas demand side which unfortunately doesn't mesh with reduction in carbon emissions for most of the climate change activists, right? Um, so that, which is a frustrating fact, right? But as an engineer and as someone familiar with uh, how much natural gas reserves we have in North America and throughout the rest of the world, we have a ton of it. So there'll have to be kind of a step change in the rest of the industry to prohibit us from burning that gas. What do I mean by step change? Kind of a, either a carbon tax or some other policy in action that makes it cost prohibitive, you know, based on the current system that we have now, uh, EVs would only grow the demand for gas. Kind of the opposite effect for oil though, right? We price oil 
uh, to be tremendously valuable, much more valuable than natural gas on a heating value basis and energy density basis right now. And if electric vehicles, right, about 50% of the demand for oil goes to transportation. And so if electric vehicles grow and that market grows, then that naturally reduces the demand for gasoline and diesel. So it would be a bullish case for gas, bearish case for oil. Interesting. Do you see companies acknowledging that? Do you see them oh, yeah. making any I, plans to... I think the biggest companies, certainly the largest DNPs, multinational DNPs, um, certainly already have that perspective and are actively taking steps to integrate and part of their that into their corporate planning. I mean, one easy example is thinking of Equinor and the number of offshore wind farms that they're installing off of uh, Norway, right? ENPs are energy companies primarily with a goal of generating energy and primarily they do that right now by extracting hydrocarbons because that's the most profitable and energy dense fuel that we have. The largest ones especially won't miss out on the opportunity to pivot to a different technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would imagine that the big energy companies of today will be the big energy companies of the future because they have the ability to, I guess, play, play ball. When electrifying vehicles, both in the private and the commercial sector, um, how do you forecast that changing the grid and the ability to balance out the grid? I guess kind of what we were saying. Today's existing infrastructure. Are using an existing infrastructure, are we? Get, is there going to be more, I guess, peak demand? Like, are we going to need to up, up the ante and generate more electricity? Again, this this coincides with what we spoke about earlier about managed charging, and also a big part of what will determine at least where, if, and when peaks occur will be driver behavior. So we talked about how at the moment most of charging is conducted at home mm -hmm. overnight, but as EV proliferation increases, that's it's possible that it will change. It depends on who you ask. Everyone has a different forecast. In my opinion, if we look at the trends of urban development, if we look at the fact that more and more people are moving to cities, Yes, some of that will mean there are fewer people that own vehicles, but a lot of what that means is that people won't be charging at a residential level okay. in terms of having their own home, but they'll be tra uh, tra charging at an apartment building, or they'll be more focused on what is called destination charging, so charging at a grocery store or the mall. And what that means is that charging, the bulk of charging may not necessarily be condensed to overnight. It could be throughout the day. So the as far as peak demand, I, I, I think it's to, to be determined how the future develops. But overall, yes, I, EVs will have a, a pretty large uh, impact on the amount of energy that we consume overall, though that exact ratio of how, how much transportation will add to our load is not certain. NREL conducted a study that uh, with three different cases, one where it doesn't impact the amount that we consume all that much, another where it increases maybe 10 to 15 percent, and another where it increases maybe 30 percent. So again, the variability is, is pretty crazy.
Yeah. I'd like to perhaps delve into the weeds just a little bit more. There seems to be, just from our conversation now, consensus among the three of us at least, and certainly within the se- your sector, that there's tremendous growth opportunities in the EV and EV infrastructure space. You mentioned several specific technologies earlier when you were discussing them, uh, circuit breakers, transformers. Is there any one of those or any one segment of those that stand out to you as more of a growth sector than others? So I can talk a little bit about a big trend that almost everyone in the industry agrees will be a necessary transition, and that's distribution of DC electricity. Okay. So at the moment, our grid distributes AC. Right. And in order to charge a vehicle, you need to have a a power conversion box on site that will convert the power from AC to DC. So uh, a big trend that we see is what's being termed DC as a service. So that's utilities offering direct DC to a charging location. So for Eaton, especially in Eaton Research Labs, we have a big project with a lot of different partners, including utilities, including a charger manufacturer to develop a solid state transformer that will be able to provide that, that will take that that additional piece of infra- infrastructure that a previously or currently a charging station owner has to purchase and most importantly has to have space for on their site, it will remove that so that the utility will own that piece of the of the puzzle and will be able to provide that. So that's at the transformer level. So for Eaton, I think that that's a that's a big a big new technology that will have a, an impact on how we distribute electricity. That was a perfect example. Thank exactly you. what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, that was that's super cool. Brings to mind if you're an electrical engineer in the industry and you're thinking about what opportunities might exist to go out and develop a new black box, right? It's it's opportunities like that that you know someone's going to think about, develop, and chase. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I I just can't help but to think like you know at a time where we have really complex challenges, like that's tremendous opportunity. Like if you shift the perspective from oh, we're screwed, like this is a problem to think about all this all this opportunity, you know, that's ahead of us. It, it allows me to see the silver lining and get really excited about the future. Exactly. I, I heard a talk recently that was, this is a little bit on a larger scale, stepping out of what we're talking about specifically, but that talked about the fear that technology will take all of our jobs. And the, they said they may take our careers, but they won't take our jobs in the sense yeah. that technology creates jobs that we've never even thought of before. Mm, exactly. Dog, a dog, dog walkers yeah. that, or Uber drivers is a huge example. So I think that that goes right along with what you were saying, Jake, that this trend may dampen some industries but at the same time, it provides a lot of new opportunities that we're still learning about. 
couldn't agree more. Totally agree with that. All right, great. So I guess to change topics a little bit to more things that interest you, in terms of reducing our carbon footprint, I guess, theoretically, we electrify the transportation sector, and then the electricity that we generate to power these vehicles is run on more renewable energy. And nuclear. And nuclear. nuclear. Thank there you. There it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, where are you at, nuclear? I'm glad um, we're over. You're on, you're on, you're on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There's two engineers in the room. Three engineers in the room. Nuclear power. Oh, Go absolutely. Ahead. Yeah. Nuclear has, it has to be right? part of the, the solution. Renewables can't support the baseload. Oh, I'm biased, but I do think it's the solution or a excellent solution. So just need to change absolutely. the public perception of it. I feel yeah. like that's we're, a big obstacle there. One podcast at a time, Jake. Oh, sorry. Okay, sorry. Well, I mean, it's interesting <laughs> that you that you mentioned public perception. I think that there's a parallel there with electric vehicles and range anxiety is yeah is a is a barrier at the moment to more EV adoption. And Absolutely. I was just today reading a study conducted by CNET that said actually 81% of people live within f- in the US live within 5 miles of a charging station and 52% live within 2 miles wow. of a charging station and the study also mentioned that the the solution to range anxiety is owning an electric vehicle because if you talk to people with electric vehicles only 90 95% of electric vehicle owners have never had any situation where they have run out of a charge. Interesting. So yeah. they say that it's, I think, 54, 58% of Americans say that range anxiety is a, is a big concern about electric vehicles. But then when told that fact, when told the facts about the infrastructure that does already exist and how most of your charging is going to be done at home, you're not going to typically drive 200 miles a day i think americans drive around 39 miles a day and so you're going to drive to work come home plug in overnight top up and you'll be fine yeah but it's psychology and that's it's the same problem that's facing nuclear energy i'll delete this out but i do think it's funny so that means that five percent of ev drivers have had. have run out of it <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, then exactly. I, and then i think is there five percent of gasoline owner or I see exactly that have run out of gas maybe i don't know i've come close to running out of gas i've, I've never done it but you know i've met people that will yeah. fill up at half a tank because <laughs> never again <laughs> sounds like you're passionate about the carbon footprint of food so let's talk about that a little bit i am so this was something that i honestly hadn't thought too much about until i entered my master's program And I started learning about all of the different ways that humans have a carbon footprint. And a relatively significant portion of our carbon footprint is food and specifically meat and dairy. So I. It really breaks my heart because I love meat. Hey, they're coming out with some amazing substitutes. Have you had an Impossible Whopper? I, I have had the Impossible Burger. I've uh, Whopper is that? Burger yeah, Burger King's? King. No. So it's it's pretty cool actually. Burger, both Burger King and Carl's Jr. now have a 
meat substitute offered at wow. every one of their chains. Crazy. I've never tried them, personally. The, the problem for me is they're, the ones in existence now are still relatively high fat. It's like an 80-20 hamburger. Oh, really? And I eat like the 93-7. Even though it's... I like the leaner meat. Huh. Anyway. Yeah. Not to get too derailed here. So I I love... I I wouldn't call myself vegetarian. I still eat meat. But I've eaten significantly more vegetables in the last few years just as a health choice and kind of an environment choice. And I find it interesting that these meat replacements... It's interesting to me that vegetables have to pretend to be meat to be consumed. Yeah, there there are a lot of really incredible meat substitutes out there. And I think that uh, it helps a lot to, if you're a, think considering vegetarianism, but you're a meat lover, try some meat substitutes. I would encourage you. One barrier to that, the moment is cost. Meat substitutes yeah. can be pretty pricey but you don't have to go full vegetarian you can try meatless mondays that's a big thing just small small decisions can have a pretty big impact so i i find it funny i had a friend who talked about how her her brother would take drastic measures to reduce flushing the toilet Ah, right. So save, you try to save water. Exactly. Yeah. Drastic uh, measures, huh? Yeah, as better, in better environmental choices. Right. Right. Drastic measures, as in leaving. You know, going to the yard to uh, to urinate. And- <laughs> <laughs> We're all human here. Something I would. But what's interesting about that is that a burger consumes the same amount of water as i think ten thousand toilet flushes yeah so wow i can believe that i would just recommend anyone that hasn't considered the impact of their diet on the environment just kind of do a little research learn some facts about the amount of water consumption that goes into food production and the the methane from cows is a as a huge contributor i think yeah. methane is 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide so so you've got a chart in front of you what uh let, let's list a few numbers from this chart anything that All you right. want to disclose so i have an interesting chart that ranks food by their carbon dioxide equivalent and car miles equivalent so uh this is in kilos so, for example, uh, lamb consumes uh, the, the production of, ma- of lamb. So this is on the farm. This is in the factory. This is the transportation of that meat. Right. Uh, is Everything a, that goes into it. Exactly. Is around uh, 39.2 kilos of carbon dioxide or the equivalent of driving 91 miles. Um, beef is the second highest carbon dioxide emitter at 27 and that's the equivalent of 63 car miles um, then compared to let's look at lentils that's 0.9 kilograms of yeah. carbon dioxide and two car miles point is yeah meat and animals take a lot more energy exactly to grow exactly than plants do you can think of it simply as eating a, some Produce yourself 
versus the amount of produce that has to be fed to an animal mm-hmm. in order to produce the meat that you consume. So the the density of resources is much higher in meat than it is in vegetables and non-meat. Cool. Just agriculture as a whole, especially in the United States, it's a really interesting topic, both the energy that goes into it, um, I guess the tastes and preferences of Americans, just what they like to eat, and then just historically, over history, the way technology has advanced and the way the government has helped push different technologies for the agricultural sector so you could get those beautiful tomatoes you know that go in the store and are so pretty but suddenly there's a ton of them what do we do with the food waste oh we could use sell it as feed stock to for for livestock um and then through through that just kind of developing this this chain of production do livestock eat tomatoes uh no i meant i meant to go to corn uh, corn but then uh, you know corn. i don't i don't want to talk about the glimmering yeah. shining yellow corn in the grocery store but uh, also something exciting related to meat substitutes for you mark is the development of lab-grown meat have you heard about this yeah they're expensive aren't they well, it's, right now. it doesn't yeah. doesn't exist quite yet. Well, right. it exists in the sense that it is being conducted in a lab, but yeah. a lot of issues remain with texture and obviously the <laughs> expense involved. Yeah. But it is something that is in development. It is on I'm the horizon. I'm ecstatic for it. Which I'm, will I'm be, very excited for when we can just grow a steak and we don't have to grow a whole cow. Exactly. It's going to solve be, a lot of problems. It will be incredible. So yeah. stay tuned for that. So let's get into a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what advice can you share with young professionals on a similar path as you? I would say the approach that I took to my career was I knew that although I studied engineering, I didn't want to be confined to the technical space. Don't be trapped. Exactly. Don't be siloed in one thing. Exactly. That being said, I think a, a foundation in a technical role is crucial to being successful in non-technical and more commercial or managerial roles. So that... You have to know what you're talking about in order to try and lead people. Exactly. Exactly. You have to be able to empathize with, with those you lead, with those that you are trying to influence. So I would say don't don't be so focused on a singular goal that you ignore other opportunities that might be off your perceived path. Mm, I think that's great advice that we could all take to heart. But yeah, that leads me into, have you ever believed something to be true about your industry um, but had your mind changed? When I was looking for roles following graduate school, I was considering different industries, but one industry that I thought was so boring, just very doldrum, I never Oil wanted to be involved in. <laughs> well, actually. That, that was my perspective. <laughs> Oil and gas. Don't get into so oil boring. and gas. And then I got hired by David Ramsdenwood, and it became a lot more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Exactly. Uh, so manufacturing was that industry for me. I thought, I don't want to work in manufacturing. And 
I don't at the moment work in manufacturing, but I do work for a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really cool about working for a manufacturing company is that you see the physical outcome of your work. Yeah. There is something you can hold in your hand. It's tangible. Exactly. You can say, I helped create that. Also, learning about manufacturing is essentially learning about how everything we see in our daily lives is created and understanding the different processes that go into manufacturing and the technology and the opportunities for you know autonomy in manufacturing is really exciting. So I would say the what I I, I thought it was very run of the mill and rather dull. And I learned there's actually a lot of different facets to manufacturing that can make a really exciting career. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything you believe personally? I would say in addition to food, for anyone that's interested in learning about personal carbon footprint, just think about your daily activities and how those can contribute. Uh, I, I often say think something that tends to be a little controversial, which is that I don't really believe in recycling. Oh, okay. How so come? that's because number one, I think less than 10% of what you place in a recycling bin actually does get recycled. Yeah. I don't think people realize what goes into the other end of that container. Typically, there's a human sorting it at the other end that has to deal with your Chipotle wrapper that you threw into that container, right? Exactly. And if you have a bin full of recycled materials, but there's one item that someone has carelessly thrown into that bin that cannot be recycled, then the entire bin is throw out, mm-hmm. thro- thrown out. Yeah. What a waste. Right. So I, uh, I've heard, you know, when in doubt, throw it out is a term that I've heard because you could taint an entire bin of recycling. And the other reason that I don't believe strongly in recycling is because it tends to be a bit of a Band-Aid. People think, hey, I recycled some plates today. I bought some compostable plates and I put them in the recycling bin and I recycle as much as I can. So I'm doing my part. Mm. Let me get into my SUV and drive 10 miles to work from where I live in the suburbs. Let me go share a big steak meal with my family and I can wash my hands of this whole climate change thing because I've recycled. That's that's something that I, I, I would challenge everyone to really look at the numbers that's that's when you look at things like nuclear energy forget about what you think nuclear energy is forget about where you think you are contributing the most to decreasing your carbon footprint and look at the numbers the data is all there do a quick google search and you can kind of reflect on the way that you're living your life and find ways that you can make a a much larger impact I believe. That's great. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, 
because it just to me it feels like something that a lot of people do nowadays is have the convenient conversation about the big challenges you know well of course i recycle because naturally that's the right thing to do yeah it's much more popular in certain areas right in boulder if you don't recycle then they throw you out of town or san francisco right but other areas of the country it's the culture isn't there at present but i like your perspective i think it's excellent we talked about industry trends are there any other industry trends that you see evolving and i guess on top of that do any keep you up at night I think the biggest trend that I am worried about with electric vehicles and further autonomy is something that we discussed earlier. And that's this idea, which maybe might not be so much a trend as a perception, but the idea that electrifying transportation and having autonomous fleets of vehicles is the solution to minimizing the carbon impact of transportation. Yeah. A lot of people think that electric vehicles can solve perhaps the climate change problem, but it doesn't stop us from generating the electricity with natural gas, right? So in a perfect world, how are you going to solve that problem? Nuclear we, energy. Nuclear energy? Is how I would. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Is this going to just become the nuclear energy podcast? No, <laughs> maybe no. a good preface. It's the to professionals and energy. energy. Oh, that's right. But I, some of I us would that say, want to build a nuclear power plant. <laughs> <laughs> as as far as the the other issues with that idea that just electrifying transportation will solve everything, right? One one problem that are that's commonly discussed in the field of EVs and autonomy, which kind of go hand in hand, is this idea that the more convenient it is to ride in vehicles, the less convenient it will become to utilize public transportation. And the problem there is that there are people that are dependent on public transportation because they can't afford to own their own vehicle. They can't afford to take a lift everywhere. And the less utilization of public transportation, the less support there will be, the less funding for additional public transportation and existing infrastructure could decline in quality. And that creates a, a big problem when we're looking at the the gaps in lifestyles based on income. And I think in general, that that's something that a lot of people don't think about is the impact of increased autonomy on the lower income earners and those that are dependent on the public infrastructure that may decline as a result. Lots of good stuff to think about here. We definitely covered a wide array of topics. Yes, wow, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was excellent. Thanks, Kathleen. Uh, if folks want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. You can email me at kathleen.nelson.romans at gmail.com. And I would be happy to answer any further questions, share any references that I used during this podcast and just chat about anything. Cool. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. This has been yeah. fun. Thanks for having me on guys.